You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, I read um, a story in the papers a few uh, months ago uh, about a couple from the UK who, after getting engaged, discovered that they were destined to be together. They'd met at university and had been dating for about four years, and uh, their names were Heidi and uh, Eli, I think. Uh, Heidi and Ed. There we go. That's why I think it's Eli. Heidi and Ed. And uh, um, they'd met. They'd been dating for four years before they got engaged. And after they got engaged, they did the usual thing, and the parents got together and had a meal and all that sort of thing. And um, while they were having a meal t- together, the parents, Heidi's mum, mentioned how funny it was that they uh, that they got together because Heidi had had a childhood holiday romance with a little boy called Ed when they were about six or seven years old or something like that. They didn't think much more of it, but one day when she was going through some old photos Heidi's mum had found, um, she found a holiday snap of Heidi and this other Ed together, but it wasn't another Ed, it was the same Ed they'd met before. Uh, they'd spent their whole holiday together, almost inseparable, inseparable, being as in love as you can be when you're seven. And uh, they'd both forgotten all about it. And they hadn't recognized each other, and they'd met by chance, and they'd been together for four years, never discussed it, never realized that they'd met before. Isn't that amazing? So they said, that, you know, obviously they felt like there's some kind of destiny was guiding them or something. They said, we'd been together for four years when we found out it's so mad to think we might never have known. Um, so they saw this uh, destiny in their own lives, and they thought it was weird that they might never have known that they'd been destined to be together. Well, in our reading from Mark's Gospel today, what we see is a couple who were destined to be together. But in the passage we read, one of them knows it, and the other one doesn't. And the couple, of course, are Jesus and the nation of Israel. Uh, the people of Israel were waiting for a great man to come, uh, God's man to come, the Messiah, who was going to fulfill all of God's promises that he made to them over thousands of years. And this was like a, it, it wasn't just a, some distant hope, it was a clear current expectation, it was a kind of a, uh, you know, a, a real vital living hope among the people that this Messiah was going to come. They were looking out for him, that's the point. They were looking out for the Messiah. And uh, Mark shows us in all the details of his account of the triumphal entry, which is in all four Gospels, how Jesus is that Messiah. He is the fulfillment they were expecting. But unlike the happy story of Ed and Heidi, uh, although all the clues are there that they're destined to be together, the people of Israel miss the significance of what's happening. They miss it. And uh, Mark's giving us a, a kind of a unique take on the triumphal entry. It's kind of a, is it a triumphal entry or isn't it? It's, it's a question for Mark. And so we're going to look at the clues that Mark arranges for us to show us this fulfillment one by one and uh, just to see how obvious he makes it. And the first is he makes a really big deal out of um, Jesus coming from a certain direction towards Jerusalem. He comes by way of Bethphage or Bethphage or who knows how it's pronounced. I don't know. I wish I knew Aramaic. But um, I've heard very good Bible scholars pronounce it both ways. He comes from Bethphage. He comes via the way of the Mount of Olives. So he's coming to Jerusalem from the east. And the biggest expectation, messianic expectation of God's people was that um, the glory had departed from the, the temple in Israel at some point. 
that through the sin of Israel, the glory had departed. But the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 43, foretold a time when the glory of the Lord would return to the temple from the east and, re- and the glory of the Lord would come and take up residence in the temple and restore it to its former glory. And Mark is like going, he's, you know, he's got sirens buzzing. This is what's happening. Like, you know, he's not just mentioning some geographical details. He's saying, look, the glory of the Lord is returning to the temple. And actually, the next like um, bit of Mark is how Jesus begins to restore the glory. He starts, he cleanses the temple, he teaches in the temple and so on. So he's fulfilling this Ezekiel prophecy by coming from the Mount of Olives. Um, Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord entered the temple from the east. So even today, if you go to Israel on the Mount of Olives, uh, the, the, the graves of faithful Jewish people are there, thousands upon thousands of them. Why? Because they believe when the Messiah returns, he's going to come that way. And they're all going to raise up and walk with him into Jerusalem. And it's like, it happened already. Sorry, guys. But, um, you know, so there we go. So that's the big one. And um, then, of course, Zechariah 9.9, which some of the other gospel writers reference explicitly, uh, where Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, daughter uh, Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a, a donkey. So this is like, it's a literal, you know, kind of fulfillment of this prophecy. This is like a big messianic prophecy. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to ride on the donkey. You know, and the donkey had lots of symbolism as well. There's lo- you, could, you could actually do a whole Bible study on donkeys in the Bible, and you'd see like a real theme emerge. But the obvious ones, of course, are humility. It was a king coming in humility, which you make a big deal out of. But Jesus, although he's coming in humility, he was still acting like a king. Because a king could enter a city, he would always enter mounted, but he could, if he was on a horse, he would come in triumph and victory, and like he defeated the city, he, was, he came as a conqueror. But if he came on a donkey, it was a declaration of peace. So Jesus is coming as a king, but the king of, or prince of peace. Um, there's a couple of other ones which aren't quite so obvious. So Genesis 49 is an uh, amazing prophecy over Jacob's sons, all the different tribes, you know. And um, um, the, the prophecy over Judah is that Judah will rule until, so Judah is going to be the, the ruler of the tribes of Israel. Judah will rule until the Messiah comes. And then he will tether his colt. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. And there's a real clear reference to, to that imagery in this passage. And then, of course, you've got the Psalms, just to take one. Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord with bows in your hands, joining the festal procession to the altar. So there's, even the Psalms talk about the Messiah coming and being welcomed with palms and branches laid before him and, and all, all sorts of things. Those are scriptural things we could pick out a few more, but Mark is making this case for us. He's showing, like it's, it's pretty obvious what's happening here. They're missing it. Then there's all this circumstantial stuff. Jesus is a king. A king has the right to, like a policeman, you know, I don't think it actually is true, but apparently a policeman can say, I need your car, and then you have to give it to him. I think that's maybe an only in America or something. But like that, uh, a king in Israel was, had the right to commandeer any animal. And so he tells him, go and take Go and take this donkey. We don't know if the owner knew him. We don't know any of the details, do we? It's a bit of a mystery. You know, was someone really annoyed to find their donkey gone that morning? Or had Jesus spoken to them about it before? If he did, when did he have the opportunity? You know, it does, we just don't know. So he commandeers this animal. And it's really important. It's, it's an unridden animal. A king was to ride on a, an animal that was n- not used by any other person. 
So unused. So Jesus is king. He has authority over the situation. He knows what's going to happen. He's, he's saying when, you know, if someone asks you what, what to, to say, this is what you're supposed to say. He's in complete control of it. So he's showing his kingship. He's fulfilling, uh, all these prophecies. And then you kind of have the unwitting cooperation of the crowds. The unwitting cooperation of the crowds. So they're crying, Hosanna, God saves. And we've heard today, Similar explanations of what it means. God saves. God saves is like in Latin, you would say salve. In France, you say viva. In this country, we say hooray. It, 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 although it literally means God saves, it has become a kind of a, a thing you shout when something really cool is happening. So these people are shouting Hosanna. Are they literally saying God saves? Probably not, actually. But God knows that, that you know, God's arranged it, so they're saying the right things. And, Mark kind of emphasizes they didn't really know. It's interesting, actually, if you look at the other gospel writers, they're quite careful to point out, like I'm highly read for us from John, John's account. Notice it says the disciples of Jesus welcomed him in with shouts of Hosanna. You know, sometimes you get the impression that all the people were there and they understood who Jesus was and they're welcoming him as king. No, the disciples had a clue. They didn't fully understand because Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. They, the people who'd seen Lazarus raised from the dead were pretty excited because that happened just before. You know, the people who've been following Jesus were excited. Other people were there. Did they know what happened? Some commentators even think it was just the time of year when pilgrims walked into Jerusalem. And it was just a tradition. You'd line the streets and you'd lay down palms before the pilgrims and you'd say, Hosanna. It might not have even been for Jesus. Now, the other gospel writers are showing that Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy because from God's perspective, he is being welcomed into Jerusalem as the conquering king. But from the people's perspective, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Actually, we don't know. They're kind of unwittingly cooperating. And they say this phrase, which has no... Mark, it's really interesting. Mark has all these details that show he's like an eyewitness. They say this phrase, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That's, That's not a thing people say. That's not a phrase from the Bible. We have no precedent for that phrase in any contemporary literature or anywhere in the Bible. Blessed is the coming king of our father David. People didn't say that. So they were just having a weird day when they were saying random stuff, but they were right. (laughs) They were right. Blessed is the coming king of our father David. And there's probably more. Okay, so, so Jesus is fulfilling all this stuff and it's all happening, but Mark wants us to feel something in the air. Something isn't right. There's like this kind of suspenseful, mm, off-key note in the background. Mark, he leaves out some of the details from the other gospel. You know, he doesn't mention, like Matthew, the whole city was stirred. Um, he doesn't, uh, the other gospel writers give the impression, they don't actually say, but they give the impression that Jesus went straight to the temple and cleansed it straight away. They're just actually editing. You know, they're not putting in all the details. Mark points out something else that no one else points out. He says, when he's finished, there's this anticlimax. Jesus goes to the temple, he looks around, and then he leaves the city and goes to bed. <laughs> Nothing happens. Nothing happens. It's this massive anticlimax. He goes back to Bethany for the night. So he does cleanse the temple. He does that the next day. He begins to do that. He does teach there. He does restore it, um, or begins to restore it. But it's not immediate. And Mark wants to see this discontinuity. All of these signs, all this prophetic fulfillment, all of this cooperation of the crowds, God orchestrating everything. And was he welcomed into the temple like the Messiah? Did they see the glory of the Lord returning? Did they, did they gather around him and say, like, what's now? Should we, you know, what's going to happen now? No. There was nobody there. 
He looked around. He went home. They're completely unprepared for him, despite the apparent triumph of his entry. So can, I don't know if you've ever... I feel like this has happened to me. I couldn't think of an example. Um, have you ever turned up to a party on the wrong day? <laughs> you have? Okay. I feel like that's happened to me. I don't, maybe I just saw it and tell you or something, but you, you go to some, spe- you know, some, uh, special day at a national trust or something, you get there and you're convinced like there's something on for the kids and you've driven for 40 minutes and you get there and there's like nothing. And, uh, imagine like, uh, imagine like the queen has a date in a diary. She's going to visit Turner's Hill, but we all forgot or something. And she came and like, there's nothing here. Can you imagine? That's, that's what Mark is trying to evoke in us. This massive kind of, Whoa. This is his city. It's his temple. It's what everyone is waiting for. All of the signs are there, but they miss it. They miss it. So what's Mark's big point? Even though Jerusalem was made for Jesus, even though it was made for him, even though he was the perfect fulfillment of their hopes and their needs, they didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize him. So I guess there's lots of different ways we could apply that. And we can think about that. But there's a few things I feel like the Lord would say to us through that portrayal of the triumph of entry today. The things that God would speak to us about. First thing I think that the Lord would say to us this morning through his word is to offer us a reassurance about the world around us. So much of our experience, perhaps especially in this country, or we might say especially in our culture, um, today is of a world that doesn't recognize that Jesus is its king. Doesn't recognize that Jesus is its king, doesn't recognize that they need Jesus. And we can understand this picture. Actually, Heidi hinted at this, but um, there are sort of allegorical ways we can interpret this, kind of pictorial ways we can see Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We can see it as a picture of world history. Um, I'm pretty sure that's probably why it's in all four Gospels, because all four of the Gospel writers writing to tiny groups of Christians, you know, just around the Mediterranean and that sort of thing, they were saying that whether the world recognizes it or not, we worship the true king. (laughs) Look, this is, you know, and this is a picture of it. Um, What we have here, Jesus' arrival at Jerusalem is a picture of Jesus' arrival in the world. It points to his incarnation. The world is made for Jesus. Everything was made through him and for him. We missed that bit. (laughs) Everything was made for him. So just like Israel was God's people and the temple was made for God's glory, so the world belongs to Jesus. That Actually, the temple, as big as it is, is just a small picture, a scale model to show us what the purpose of the created world is. The created world is a temple. The universe is a temple for God's glory. The Bible says everything was made through him and for him. The whole What that means is the whole world is waiting for Jesus to come and be king. The whole world is waiting for Jesus to come and cleanse it of its corruption. You know, the casting out of the money changers in the, in the cleansing of the temple, which is going to happen next in Mark. That's a picture of what God is going to do in the world. You get it in Revelation when Babylon falls. You know, the great city of Babylon in Revelation. This, this system of corrupt, uh, and abusive, um, uh, manipulation of the, of the world's resources and a system that's raised up against God is going to fall one day. 
And, and then Jesus is going to come back. You know, those two things, there are parallels. It's a picture, it's a really, really big picture of what's going to happen. Jesus is establishing the kingdom of our father David. Isn't that cool? Whether we know it or not, whether they know it or not, more importantly, everything is moving towards that ending. History is his story. It's Jesus' story. And in fact, he's already made his first visit. The key point for us, and I think the Lord would just remind us of this, is that is true, whether people recognize it or not. You know, you've got all these people in this story. You've got the person who owns the donkey. Like I say, we don't know whether he knew what was going on or not. Or she. We don't know if it's a he or a she, do we? Who owned the donkey? Don't know. Uh, Jesus is in control. You've got the people who ask, what are you going to do with the donkey? But Jesus already has an answer ready for them. You've got the crowd who are saying the right things, but don't know who or what they're really shouting for. You've got a city unprepared for the arrival of the king and a temple that's weirdly not ready for the king. And yet every step, God is in control, fulfilling his purposes. He's fulfilling all these pictures. You know, all the pictures of scripture, the picture of, um, of Isaac riding on a donkey to be sacrificed on Mount Moriah is here. All those things in Ezekiel and Zechariah, they're here, they're all there, whether they know it or not. And sometimes that pressure of realizing nobody else sees that stuff, we begin to doubt the veracity or the power of our message. Because so many people don't see it because they're just not in on on God's plan. But all the evidence is there. Even though People around us have no clue that Jesus is king. God is still orchestrating everything perfectly for his rule. People may not believe. They may actively work against God's purposes. They may oppose the church. They may oppose his moral law, as is increasingly happening around us. People who say that our you know, God's law is outdated or it's repressive. And uh, and the story we're told explicitly and implicitly in the media is that the defeat of God's kingdom is inevitable. That the, the, the law of Jesus is going to come tumbling down and some other kingdom is going, to, is going to be triumphant. That this is inevitable defeat waiting for us, but Jesus is reigning now, just like he was in complete control in what was happening in our story. And he will reign until all his enemies are defeated. He says in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus is reigning now and will reign until all his enemies are defeated. So God would, I think, reassure us. You ever feel like the world's going crazy? You wonder what's around the corner. If not for you, for your kids or your grandchildren. We can feel like there's no control. We can feel like there's another story that's taking things off in a different direction. We can feel like the world is random or opposed to God. But one day, like uh, Peter, who's talking to Mark, or like Mark is writing it down for us, one day we'll look back at everything that happened, at history, all the crazy stuff, all the normal everyday stuff that's happened, and we'll, like Mark, we'll look back and say, look how it all fitted in with God's plan. We'll look back and say, look how in control he was. Even the little everyday things that we did for him were part of him fulfilling his great plan. Not just history. You understand, but your life as well. 
Every little bit of your life is in control. Everything is perfectly arranged for his glory and for your good. So God would reassure us, I think that's the first thing. Secondly, another really cool thing I think that follows on from that. Um, God is showing us from his word that everyone is cooperating with his plans, whether they know it or not. You know, the disciples were literally obeying Jesus' commands, weren't they? I mean, he, he was giving, he's telling them, go here, and they were doing it. Uh, go and untie this colt. Go and talk to these people. Give this answer when you're questioned. But they didn't really know why they were doing it. They were cooperating, but they didn't know. And I, I feel like the next thing I, I think God would just speak to us through his word about is just to remind us that you are not passive observers in fulfilling God's plans. We have the perspective that Mark had writing after all this stuff had happened. We've seen the cross. We know what happens on the third day, don't we? We have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts. We know what type of king Jesus is. And God's saying, you know all these things. You've got the Holy Spirit working in you. You know my love. So you don't just have to hang on to history and just know that I'm in control. You can actually work with me in fulfilling my purposes. You aren't called to be passive observers. You can work with me, he says. Let me just try and bring that down to a practical level. So lots of Christians, I would say, when stuff is happening around them, that they don't understand, are able to trust that God is in control. And we talk about it here, you know, we preach it, God's sovereignty, right? God is in control. Um, and God is working his purposes out, he's glorified in everything. You know, maybe there's something happening in your life right now, some difficult situation, a work, health problem, family situation, and you can say, I may, I may not understand, but I trust that God is good all the time. That's amazing to be able to say that, isn't it? But I feel like God would say to us this morning, that's, that's not the whole picture of how I want you to respond to the things around you. I was, um, Andy and I and the eldership candidates, we're just starting to read a book, um, about disciplines in the Christian life. And the guy gives an illustration, the guy writing the book gives an illustration right at the beginning, talks about, um, a, uh, a chap who's learning to play the guitar and, an angel comes and visits him and transports him into the future and shows him a picture of a guy playing a guitar in front of an audience in, in a like a packed hall. And this guy is like a classic guitar virtuoso. And he watches this guy playing and um uh and he says, That's he's a, it's amazing. Who is that? And the angel says to him, That's you <laughs> in however many years' time. So don't get frustrated with the the practices, with the scales and you know, the routines, that sort of thing. Don't get frustrated with it. This is what you're working for. I think, and in the book, the point is discipline is good. You know, it takes you places you wouldn't get to otherwise. Da, da, da. But I'm just thinking, you know, there's another application to that. That the obedience that God wants for us, wants from us, and especially the confidence that he has in us, uh, he, he wants us to have in him when bad things are happening, are more than just going through the motions, like playing a scale, you know, Lord, I really trust you. I don't really understand why this is happening, but I really, really trust you. But actually, he's given us a vision of the future, where this is all heading. All of our obediences to God are working towards uh, the, the kingdom of God, aren't they? 
They're working towards the final crowning of Jesus when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that picture is harmonized by the picture of love that God displays for us at the cross. We know how to respond to things because we're not just disciples, servants who obey. We're sons who understand our father's business and are able to work with him. So we know, because of what God reveals at the cross, that he loves us completely. That We know, more important, that he's not only in control and good, but we know that he's able to, because of the cross, turn the most evil of circumstances to glorious ends, isn't he? That's what the cross teaches us. So what he's asking for us is not just, I trust you, I'll do what you say, like the disciples in his story. He's asking us to see from the perspective of after the, after the story. He's saying, what kind of response can I give to the situation I'm in, in faith, that will work together with him to bring about his purposes? You understand what, what I'm saying? God isn't just looking for obedience. Go and untie the donkey, and if anyone asks you, say this. That's good. But because we know that actually the king is being crowned, because we know who Jesus is, because we know where this is all headed, we can go and untie that donkey thinking, this is the donkey from Zechariah 9. You know? And and this is a donkey for a king because it's never been ridden before. We've got the inside scoop on what's happening. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Our obedience is not just obedience. It's, it comes with the joy and an insight. When God asks us to do something, we can say, this fits in with the love of God that he displays for us at the cross. He says, you know, if we suffer with him, we'll also be glorified with him. That's not just something we say. When God asks us to do hard things, we know that we're fulfilling his purposes in the world. We're bringing his glory to life. We're welcoming in the king. You know, that's that's amazing. That, That ability to work with God through things brings us more comfort than simply knowing he's in charge. That's why, you know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, that's why he could rejoice in his sufferings. Not just because he trusted God more than you all do. And more than me. No offense. <laughs> I don't think I'd be singing if I was in a, you know, six foot by six foot pit, two meters underground. But he was. He was able to rejoice in his sufferings. He could sing in prison. That's why he says in Romans, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Not because... He just trusted God's sovereignty more than you, that God is in control. But because he was able to see God working his purposes out in his situation. I can see that, you know, I'm, I rested in the household of Caesar, but you never guess what? Some of Caesar's guards are becoming Christians. You never guess what's happened to my prayer life since I've been stuck in this pit. It's gone through the roof. <laughs> you know, he's able to respond with faith to his situation. He's not just clinging on for dear life. He's not just obeying. You know, that's why Dave, um, Dave Taylor preached for us a few weeks ago. He can say, we can look at the persecution that's coming to the church, and instead of saying, it's okay, everything will be all right, we can actually rejoice. God is going to do amazing things, because he's shown us in the past, this is the way he works. He's not just asking us to hold on. He's saying, you can work with me, you can ride the wave. That's why we have a peace that passes understanding. That's why we can, in every situation of life, we can have contentment. Because we can have joy. We can bear the fruit of the Spirit. Because we work with Him. So whatever situation we're in, God is saying there's a response of faith that is not just, I trust you, Lord, but there's a response of faith, a practical thing, a way that we can respond to what's happening to us that invites 
fellowship with him, cooperation with him, a fuller sense of joy and life in the spirit. So we get this amazing privilege. You know, we have this, this, um, the entry into Jerusalem, I think, is echoed in Psalm 24. You know, lift high, uh, lift high your heads, are you gates? The king of glory, um, enters in. You know, we get to, we get to see that's happening now. You know, in the, in the world around us as history unfolds in our lives, we get to say those words because we actually understand that they're happening now. We get to read Psalm 118 and lay down our bows before him. No, you know, we're actually doing that. We're not just reading a psalm. We're not just saying one day Jesus is coming back. Like we're actually cooperating with his plans. So we, we get to prepare the world for his arrival. You know, untying the donkey, you know, all that sort of thing. We, we get to prepare the world for his arrival by doing good works, prepared in advance for us to do. We get to walk with the king as we, uh, live lives of peacemaking as we live lives of humility, as we live lives in poverty of spirit, we get to walk with him into Jerusalem. We get to sing his praises as we recognize him fulfilling his promises. We get to say Hosanna and mean it. We get to celebrate his arrival before anyone else. We can say Maranatha because he's actually coming back. So you know, what situation are you in? Are you facing at the moment where you're, you're not sure what God is doing? What situation are you going to face in the in the coming week where your response so far has been, God, what are you doing? Or, God, I trust you, but, you know, that's all it is. Toddlers who don't want to get dressed, that's one of our battles at the moment. Scream for no reason because you changed the... <laughs> it could be so infuriating, can't it? Stubborn work colleagues... Difficult situations, frustrations of illness, the burden of a long-term situation, something that just doesn't seem to shift. You know, God isn't just saying, trust me, I know what I'm doing, go and do this, go and do that. He's saying and asking you, what does faith look like in this situation? How do you bring my love into this situation? You've seen the cross. You know what kind of king you serve. You know he's coming back. You know it's going to happen. How can you move towards that? Can you extend my love to someone? Can you demonstrate my peace? Can you make reconciliation happen here? Can you deepen your own or someone else's relationship with me? Is this an opportunity to reveal my goodness in some beautiful way that nobody else had anticipated? Is it an opportunity to share the gospel? Can you pray? Am I calling you to suffer more closely and to walk with Jesus more closely? Am I, am I deepening your dependence on me? Or you, am I deepening your love for others? God is doing all those things and more, the things I can't imagine. I wouldn't have time to prepare if I had a week of weeks to preach this sermon. Um, you know, we get to cooperate with him. Uh, a really old, dead Christian called Andrew of Crete said this, Let us spread before his, his feet, not garments or soulless olive branches, which delight the eye for a few hours and then wither but ourselves, clothed in his grace, or rather, clothed completely in him. We have been baptized into Christ, must ourselves be the garments that we spread before him. Now that the crimson stains of our sins have been washed away, in the saving waters of baptism, and we've become white as pure wool, let us present the conqueror of death, not with mere palm branches, but with the real rewards of his victory. Let our souls take the place of the welcoming branches as we join today in the children's holy song, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Hooray for old dead guys. 
One little point I just want to mention quickly about God's guidance. Are you looking for God's will in a situation at the moment? Notice here, just very, very quickly on this point, and then one more big point. God had no trouble communicating his will. Everything was in place, wasn't it? If God wants you to do something, he'll tell you really, really clearly. That's, that's, that's a promise. And I think that comes through so clearly here. Why did they miss what God was doing? Because they didn't want what God wanted. If you want to hear clearly from God in the situation you're in at the moment, get your heart right before the Lord, submit your plans to him, and he'll guide your steps. So really, I think that comes through so clearly from this. So those, those are kind of three big points, all related to the fact God is working his purposes out, even though the people there didn't recognize it. Okay, here's a, the main point, I think, that's on my heart to share with you this morning. The last thing, and I think a precious thing God would remind us of through his word today is this, that each of us, like Israel, like Jerusalem, is perfectly designed to have Jesus as king in our lives. St. Um, Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, um, illustrates this really well. He's got a very famous phrase, which I'll tell you in a minute, but you've heard it before. But just to give you a background to, to that, this Augustine of Hippo lived in the end of the third century through to the beginning of the fourth century, and he was a wealthy, educated young man. Uh, he was a philosopher. He had a lot of time on his hands, and he had money to spare. So he spent his time looking for the meaning of life and looking for how to be happy. He spent his time having lots of relationships with young women. When that didn't work, he spent his time pursuing weird religions. When that didn't work, he spent his time pursuing virtue. And one of the things that puzzled him that led to his conversion more than anything else was he would look at Christians who didn't have his wealth or his time or his privilege. And he would look at them and say, they are able to live good lives. They're able to be good people. Their lives are full of goodness and beauty and truth. These are the things that like, I'm supposed to have because I'm rich and wealthy and I've got loads of time. And they've got it and I haven't. And in fact, he was actually addicted to all the things he'd tried to do in the past. God spoke powerfully to Augustine in an amazing, miraculous way. I don't have time to tell you the whole story. But later, he wrote in his book, The Confessions, this. In fact, he begins his book, The Confessions, with this. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O God. You know, and he was saying the same thing. Each of us is designed to have Jesus as our king. You know, so when we welcome Jesus into our life, like a king, he brings his law. He shows us how to live. He brings order and he brings freedom. Through the cross, through his sacrifice on the cross, he brings justice. He deals with sin. He de- deals with evil in us. Like, as if we're like a city, you know, as if we're like a country that needed a king. He comes and he gets rid of all the brigands or some more up-to-date term. He brings us freedom. His presence brings relationship with God. It brings intimacy. It brings that ability to cooperate. It brings prayer and good works. He creates a beautiful place in our lives. Under his rule, our lives become like a well-run kingdom, full of his glory, and we flourish like a well-governed place. That's, That's a picture of Christ as king. Our lives fill with bounty. They fill with joy and peace, prosperity in spiritual sense and, and the love of the Holy Spirit. You know, we were made for Jesus to be our king. So we're designed for him and God has arranged our lives perfectly in order to help us to receive him. 
the Bible makes that really clear. You know, even the boundaries of the countries are arranged so that we might reach out and find him. So every tragedy, every triumph, every coincidence in your life, every random act, every amazing moment, everything that's every part of you, he, he's using those things, just like he was in this story, to re- prepare you for the arrival of Jesus Christ into your life. Isn't that amazing? Every mistake you've made has been designed to draw you to Jesus. Every outright bad thing you've done, God has allowed so that one day you might know that you need to bow the knee to him. So when he comes, you're ready to receive him as your saviour. To say, yes, Lord, I need you. I was made for you. I can't do it without you. Back to and our story at the beginning, Ed and Heidi. They said it was crazy to think they could have got married without realising that they'd known each other as kids. That would be really weird, wouldn't it? <laughs> what if they just missed each other altogether? They'd gone to a party at university, said hi, got distracted, never saw each other again. That would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? It would be kind of like this thing that was meant to happen didn't happen. Mark is showing us that's the tragedy that's unfolding in his account of the triumphal entry. The king of Israel is arriving, the long-awaited king, the whole of Israel's history building up to it, all the prophecies pointing to it, and it's all been fulfilled, but they, they're missing it. It's a tragedy. And that same tragedy is happening all around us. The lives of people that we know who, just like Jerusalem, just like the people of Israel, were all perfectly designed to have Jesus as their king. Everyone, you, everyone you know, everyone, perfectly designed for him. And yet they completely miss it. You know, and that's a word, anyone who doesn't follow Jesus, that's a word to them. This is a, a, a reminder to us of the message that we carry that we carry with us into the world. To be a Christian is to become who God created you to be, to step into your destiny, to see your life make sense for the first time. We can say to people, you will be restless until you rest in Jesus. You've missed him so far because you set your heart on something other than what God wants to give you. But he wants to fill your life with happiness that flows from knowing his love and loving him in return. We can say to people, none of the things you've been trying will work. But God's plans for you are better than you can possibly imagine. We can say to people, God says to you today, open your eyes and welcome in your king. We can say to people, every part of your life has been preparing you for Jesus. Everything you've tried, we can, we can speak with confidence without knowing all the details of people's lives. Everything you've tried so far without Jesus hasn't come to anything, has it? All the things you're going to try, all those plans you've got for your head, they're not going to work. If you sit down and think about it, they're not going to be any more successful than the things you've tried so far, are they? Guys, we have an amazing message. We have a, a message that we can be confident in because this is an absolute fact. We are made for him. And if people are living without him, their lives are going to be like, they're going to be a mess. In one way or the other. God is calling us to have confidence in the face of the apparent ignorance or indifference of the people around us. He wants us to see that we're surrounded by people who, like Jerusalem, were built for the glory of God, capable of displaying 
God's glory so powerfully and wonderfully. Each person you know is not a Christian is built to display the glory of God in a way that no one else can. And those are the eyes that we should see people through. You know, we just, this wasted opportunity. And we should be confident that we can say to them, without Jesus, ruin awaits. And people are vulnerable without their king. They're a city without walls. It would take, you know, we'd look around, maybe we see that people are happy, they're secure or whatever. But you know, it just takes such a little thing when there are no city walls, when there's no king on the throne, just such a a little thing to throw everything into chaos. But Jesus Christ is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they're saved. Safe and saved. We have the opportunity to share that message with people and to bring them into that security and prosperity. More than that, not only is this, not only do people need him, not only are they restless until they find their rest in, but God has gone before us and prepared the way. He's given us the answers. When people say, what are you doing here? He's given us the answers. He's given us the authority to proclaim his gospel. And we should have confidence in that, that in sharing our faith with people, God has gone before us, arranging their lives, speaking to them, preparing them to meet with him. He's done all that stuff. And some of you will have experienced that. Let me remind you of how amazingly God has gone before you in the past, preparing the way, and you've been able to deliver the gospel like an arrow to a bullseye. And you've gone, how did that happen? And they became a Christian. It's happened, doesn't it? And if you haven't experienced, that's an expectation you should have in sharing the gospel with people. God prepares the way. So God says to us this morning, we have the courage to say to people, this message, why are you living like that? It's not going to work. You've got what you always wanted, but it hasn't fulfilled, it hasn't filled that hole in your life. Let me tell you about something that has. And maybe God's saying to you this morning, there's someone you're hesitant about sharing your faith with. There's someone you've tried to share your uh, faith with before. Well, you're not making much headway. God says, be confident in the message that I've given you. You know, of all the things we can cooperate with God in, we can work alongside him in sharing the news of the King of Kings has got to be the biggest, hasn't it? Most joyful, most important one. To walk with Jesus as he comes to the threshold of someone's life and waits for the gates to be opened. Isn't that amazing? We get to do that, guys. To untie the donkey on which, whatever that is, is a message or an opportunity to, to untie the donkey on which he rides, bringing peace into their lives. To stand alongside as, as people receive Jesus into their life and to be able to cry, Hosanna, he's done it again, Jesus saves. It's the greatest privilege we have, isn't it? Just be able to cheer, like with, just knowing how important that is, with all that insight and who Jesus is and what he's got in store for them and how he's going to use them. We get to cooperate with him in this task above all others, to see the glory of the Lord return to the temple of a lost and broken heart. That's our privilege. Let's pray for boldness and faith and opportunities to lead people to the throne of our glorious King. Amen. Let's pray.